So the paradox then of what we've been talking about is the longing to be intimate and close, yet because of the strong taboos against intimacy, we can also avoid this territory. And I think it's the nature of eros to actually begin to um, take us into this, this process. from a talk given by Brian Clark to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Brian Clark is a renowned astrologer and astrology teacher who has served as president for both Canadian and Australian astrological associations and as chairman for the Association of Professional Astrologers. He was the founder of the Chiron Centre, a school of astrology in Melbourne, and he now runs astrosynthesis.com.au, teaching astrology online. He's written many books translated into multiple languages and earned a master's degree in classics and archaeology from the University of Melbourne. He's also conducted tours to ancient sacred sites in Greece as well as workshops, seminars and retreats. Today's talk, Reclaiming Eros, includes a description and exploration of the many iterations of Eros, covering the god's evolution and his modern faces. Brian draws our attention to the ways in which Eros brings the opposites of love and isolation together, giving rise to authentic experiences of intimacy that include awareness of loss. Please note, there was a technical issue with the original recording midway through Brian's talk. There are a few seconds of our music before the talk resumes. Brian moves from talking about intimacy and our unconscious return to love and loss to the famous story of I and John, and the discovery of the key to the hidden kingdom, or to a place where we return to a wholeness and a sense of union. We hope you enjoy Brian's wonderful talk on Eros. Um, as I was driving here tonight, um, I was reminding myself of the first time I ever gave a lecture to the Jung Society, which was in the other building, in the other church they used to meet in. And um, this memory is fond in my mind because I, the topic that evening was on lunar goddesses. And I remember speaking, and at the question and answer period, uh, a man, quite inebriated, came in, and very disturbing, and some of you might have been there. Now, I was the only one that can see him because, like tonight, you're facing me, your backs are to the back, and he walked in the back. The people at the back didn't realize, of course, that they were being disturbed, and they kept moving forward. They couldn't understand why. And this man started attacking me in the middle uh, at the question and answer period, saying um, that, uh, I forget what his words were. First of all, he asked me where I bought my clothes. And then, um, and then he decided, decided to also derate me and derail me in front of the huge audience. And the shadow was constellated. So I wonder tonight what Eros may constellate. Anyway, the, the very nature of Eros is going to be difficult to talk about for its essence lies in the feeling experience of connection, not in logos. So I hope, I hope truly I'm not working against nature and trying to envision this God. <laughs> um, now I've called the talk Eros Reclaim because 
I think today what we deem erotic is actually a denial of eros. In fact, today, if you were to ask a pedestrian in a city street where the temple of Eros was, you'd be pointed in the direction of King's Cross. Um, and I needn't remind you what you might find in the temple of Eros and King's Cross. But however, we're going to look today more at the connective Eros and the connective Eros that probably isn't found in that particular temple. Maybe the people that visit these places only for a moment, they find that they are able to get away from their feelings of alienation and aloneness. And I think what we'll find tonight is that these feelings are intrinsically part of the Eros experience. However, more than ever, I feel that we have an opportunity to reclaim Eros back from its denial. Eros is a potent force that brings together the opposites and it allows feeling to flood into the unknown parts of who we are. Eros is love, and it is that experience that allows us to know ourselves through loving. But however, it's also the painful and torturous feelings that allow us to know ourselves also through the loss of love. So to get a feeling for this God, I'd like to start with looking at his evolution and try to draw in some associations throughout these various myths and stories connected to him because Eros is a diverse genealogy and very rich heritage. And then I'd like to look at his modern face in the context of personal relationships and where I see Eros today, which is in the initiatory aspect of relationships and all of our quest for intimacy. So what we'll look at is Eros and it's, it's very um, many stories. And what I'd like to do is just in perhaps looking at the diverse connections, draw links and hopefully links will come for you as well. Now this examination of Eros, I hope, is, is timely. I mean, in, in our culture, all of us examining perhaps Eros because of the changing roles we all find ourselves in, the changing roles of men and women, um, our re-questioning of gender, um, idealized and romantic love seem to have plummeted. Um, it's been exposed. Logos is a function that seems to be crumbling. So I think with that, it's probably a time to examine perhaps what Eros might be. I've just drawn some basic... Um, no. Now, how come the, this light is out? <laughs> Can we borrow one of those car lights? Um, oh, there we go. It's just to, just to go through. Um, so if we go back, one of the earliest forms of Eros is depicted as a stone phallus um, by the, I can't really quite pronounce this, but the Boeotians, I'll call it, which was an interesting part of uh, ancient Greece. And if you look it up in the dictionary, it says uh, the inhabitants of this part were, were known for their dullness, um, sort of what they call people from uh, uh, Newfoundland and the country I come from. I think they call them Tasmanians here. Um, <laughs> However, however, it is quite likely that Tasmanians actually have a representative of Eros in the culture. Um, so this stone phallus also and reminds us of the god Hermes, who is depicted also in earlier forms as a stone phallus or a pile of stones, the Herm. And his pile of stones, of course, was the journeys that we mark our milestones on, on the travels in our life. 
But uh, what struck me in just looking at the beginning of, of tracing Eros is the similarity to Hermes. And of course, this continues in later depictions of Eros because both are always seen in boyish poses later, off, later on. Often they're winged and they're in flight. Um, both gods are also connectors and mediators. Eros, however, mingles things together and brings the union of the opposites into form. Well, of course, Hermes links and creates a bridge between the gods in his aspect as messenger. And Carl Kareni states in Gods of the Greeks that Cicero actually saw Eros as the son of Hermes and Artemis. Now, that's an interesting pair because it links together here the instinctive feminine aspect of Artemis with this masculine logos part of Hermes. And what we'll see later on, of course, it's very important that Eros does link together this instinctual aspect with the more spiritual aspect. And Marie-Louise Van France also states that Eros is very close to the alchemical Mercurius, who also has the arrows of passion and the torch, representing the torturing and painful aspects of love. So Mercurius, like Eros with his torch and arrows, are symbolic of the puncturing and wounding agents to the soul. And it is those punctures and wounds that are also connected with Artemis, who, as a skilled archer, was also um, a wounder. However, she also is the representative of this wilder and more instinctive side of nature. So with Eros um, being here quoted as the son of Hermes and Artemis. It's interesting, the image of the torch, because of course that also became a symbol of unrequited love, which is part oftentimes of the Eros experience. And that's expressed in our culture as, as that phrase, carrying a torch, or torch songs, um, are also the painful litany of lost and unavailable Eros. You might remember Torch Song Trilogy. For as we shall see, it is Eros that magnetizes the feelings of loss and separation in his initiations in the mysteries of love. So this similarity of Hermes and Eros confuses the instinctive and powerful aspects of Eros with the development of Logos. While Hermes may link through language and ideas and words, it not necessarily brings the opposites together as the potent force of Eros can. Hermes is masterful at turning on the light of consciousness, tricking us into self-revelation as a trickster, and even delivering us onto the doorstep of Hestia or Hades. However, it's Eros in his primal face we'll see that will actually constellate the opposites, bring them together, and bring these antithetical forces of love and loss, trust and betrayal, symbiosis and separateness together in the experience of love. So Eros is the catalyst of change for Eros connects both body and soul. So therefore, it won't be surprising then that Eros is pictured in the healing temple of Asclepius, where patients came to the temple at Epidaurus to actually reconcile the split between body and soul. So I just would like to ask the question then, have we confused Eros with Hermes in our flight away from instinctuality? So now we move to a, the next references to Eros, which is from the Orphic traditions, which, as most of you will know, um, portrays the creation myth um, from the void of that the void of darkness is the beginning, and Nyx 
the powerful force of the darkness is often depicted as a bird with black wings is impregnated by the wind and she gives birth to the silver egg which it said Eros arises out of. The lower half of the egg becomes earth, the upper, the sky. So Eros compels them to mingle, to form relationship. And that silver egg perhaps is symbolic of the moon and reminds us of the lunar mysteries and the potent creatrix symbolized by the moon. This story also serves to remind us of Eros being born out of the union of the primal feminine darkness, Nyx, and spirit, the wind. He's a, um, he arises out of this silver egg, and therefore Eros is born out of the feminine mysteries, which we'll also see later in the Eleusinian mysteries. And Guggenbill Craig says, it is Eros who makes these gods, the archetypes loving and creative, and involved. It's only through Eros can the gods or archetypes be loving. As far as we mortals are concerned, gods are neutral, inhuman, distant, cold. Only when they are combined with Eros do we sense their movement, do they become creative, intimate, and stimulating. Eros, later depicted as Cupid, actually adorns pictures of Catholic saints in beautiful union with God literally demonstrating this power to connect. Eros then, I would say, stirs the God in us. So in this Orphic tradition, what we see here is, is that Eros exists before the splitting of heaven and earth. Or symbolically, it exists before the splitting of earth body instinct with heaven, spirit, and culture. So the Orphic tradition keeps Eros as a primal creative force before the splitting of these opposites. Psychologically speaking, then Eros may be a primal god underlying the layers of consciousness that actually splits opposite. And maybe in him we can find a sense of union, albeit this union is often born out of anguish and pain. Now Jung describes Eros in the following way which illuminates also Eros's dual connection to spirit and body. And this is from his essay, um, the two essays on analytical psychology, the first one, um, volume seven, where he says, Eros is a questionable fellow and will, always, and will always remain so, whatever the legislation of the future may have to say about it. He belongs on one side to man's primordial animal nature, which will endure as, endure as long as man has an animal body, on the other hand, he is related to the highest forms of spirit, but he only thrives when spirit and instinct are in the right harmony. If one or the other aspect is lacking to him, the result is injury, or at the least, a lopsidedness that may veer towards the pathological. Too much of the animal distorts the civilized man. Too much civilization makes sick animals. The dilemma reveals the vast uncertainty that Eros holds for man. For at the bottom, Eros is a superhuman power, like nature herself, and allows itself to be overpowered and exploited as though it were impotent. But triumph over nature is dearly paid for. Nature requires no explanations of principle, but only asks for tolerance and wise measure. I think it's important here then to keep in mind that Jung says that Eros only thrives 
when spirit and instinct are in the right harmony. So then later, um, Hesiod in the Theogony also depicts Eros as quite a primal force of creation. And he emerges um, out of chaos along with Gaia and Tartarus. Tartarus. Eros then is love, as Hesiod says, who overpowers the intelligence Hesiod describes Eros then, who is love, handsomest among all immortals, who breaks the limb's strength, who in all gods, in all human beings, overpowers the intelligence in the breast. So here it's interesting to, to note that Hesiod's description talks about Eros overpowering intelligence. And I was reminded at that point of 2,700 years later, in Aspects of Love, Andrew Lloyd Webber I'm sure you recognize those uh, lyrics when he writes, often to the world we go, planning futures, shaping years. Love bursts in, and suddenly all our wisdom disappears. Love makes fools of everyone, and all the rules we make are broken. Yes, love, love changes everything. Live or perish in its flame. Love will never, ever leave you the same. Um, I think he's quoting Eros's initiation there. However, no doubt Eros, as you would know, certainly in its demise in mythic tradition has become extremely romanticized. So let's not forget then that we see that Eros is a creative um, diamond that bursts into our lives, leaving them psychologically altered. For Eros, as we will see, engenders psyche and will awaken it to its primal and instinctive heritage. So these earlier versions of Eros then remind us of his primal and instinctive power. However, with the Olympian myths and the ascendancy to supremacy of the god Zeus and Apollo, we start to find different versions of Eros and Eros's birth. Most now as the son of Aphrodite, which begins to rework the old theme of the mother-lover. Now, as you know, of course, the Olympian myths, while Zeus is ascending, he's also carrying a fear of being displaced or castrated by his son as his own paternal heritage had done. Therefore, this fear colludes in keeping oftentimes sons, eternal children. And what we begin to see also now too is that Eros begins to be depicted now more as a boyish figure. Now, in some accounts I've read, Eros actually accompanies Aphrodite to Cyprus after her birth out of the sea. So in those, we, we seem to see that he's, he's there before her birth. However, later, we see that he becomes her son. In the earliest versions, we see Eros alongside the goddess of love, not as a son of her. And Uranus is one of the proposed fathers of Eros, and it is his severed genitals that, will, that seed the oceanic birth of Aphrodite. So we know that Uranus is a disembodied sky god and in saying that, of course, he bursts Eros, is perhaps culturally beginning to see that Eros may be linked now to the masculine sky gods, which is very much conceptually different from the birth from the silver egg of the feminine moon. Now, Aphrodite as mother-lover to Eros is the powerful motif that operates, as we'll see later in the triangularization that arises when Eros bursts into our lives. And at this point, too, in the stories, we start to see that Eros now also has a brother called Anteros, which is the wish to be loved. 
so loved return. So we start to also separate actually the act of eros and loving from also the wish and need to have it returned. Eros magnetizes love, but it's not always returned. And, and eros may actually be the turning away from eros. Desire, which also is awakened with eros as we will see, and certainly desire is part of eros, was named himeros or himeros. Now, just to continue on. Uh, Could you just focus on the word? Yeah, sure. Uh, that, me. Is, that, um, uh, is that all right? That's probably, probably my writing. I try to do it fancy rather than type it up. <laughs> um, okay, so the question is then when we get to the Olympian pantheon, who fathers Eros? Well, Ares gets the best mention. Zeus and Hermes rank a close second, and, and a reference here or there suggests Heviastus. Well, obviously, the Olympian Eros is too potent to force to father, or are we beginning to let Aphrodite um, be the only one to contain his potency? Or are we beginning to see that Eros is actually left in the domain of Mother Aphrodite? Well, interestingly, too, that these quoted fathers combine the most loved of the gods, Zeus and Hermes, with the most despised, Eros and Hephaestus. Perhaps a reminder that Eros also awakens both the divine and the demonic in us. Because we will also see as a young boy, Eros is seen burning the wings of a butterfly, you know, like your sons were caught doing last week. The butterfly actually symbolizes psyche, and Eros torments psyche and soul in its purification. So the references to Eros in the Eleusinian mysteries are also quite revealing here. Was Eros the god who led Kore to the Narcissus flower that opened up the freeway for Hades? Was it Eros's arrows responsible for Hades' abduction of the maiden Kore? Whether Eros brought professor Persephone together with Pluto or not, we do not know, but in the reactment of the Eleusinian mysteries, Kore, Persephone, gives birth to a mystical child, and this child has various names, and one of them is Eros. So like Psyche, Kore, Persephone, descends into the mysterious underworld in an initiatory passage to claim sovereignty over the underworld. The divine child born out of this experience, or the creativity that born from this experience, is Eros. Again, a common motif in Eros and our experience of him in, a mod in, the, in our modern relationships is a constellation of darker and underworld feeling that follows the naive and innocent love. So we move farther ahead to Plato, who in the symposium discusses love and Eros. And Socrates has a wonderful thing to say about Eros. And However, I just want to draw on the, the heritage that Plato discusses in the symposium. He says, Penia, being poverty or want or need, seduces a drunken poros who is plenty or resource. And as a result of this union of poverty and plenty, Eros is born. Now we all know drunkenness takes us out of our narrow ego constrictions, 
often exposing what lies below the horizon of consciousness. And maybe it's a metaphor also for the blissful reunion with what has been repressed. So in Plato's version, is Eros born out of need at the time when we actually loosen our grip on our resources? James Hillman says that when negative, this need is the voracious, selfish demand for love. It is never satiated or satisfied, always empty. Positively, this same need is the potent motive force within all psychological development, the Faustian drive. And Jung writes, without necessity, nothing bulges. The human personality, least of all, it is tremendously conservative, not to say torpid. Only acute necessity is able to rouse it. So necessity or want actually can mother Eros out of loosening and merging with our innate resources. This is a nice image at the present time. Can Eros be birthed out of this global poverty? Plato's connection with drunkenness also reminded me of Eros and Mephe, who, which is drunkenness. And in those pictures I talked about in the Escalapian temple, it was Eros along with Mephe or drunkenness that was depicted because drunkenness became a metaphor for loosening ego boundaries. So now we move into the second century and we have the, the most famous references, of course, to Eros that come out of the book called The Golden Ass which contain within this text the retelling of the fable Amor and Psyche. And um, Amor is the Latin Eros and closely associated with love. Amor now firmly is the son of Venus Aphrodite. The story of Amor and Psyche has been retold many times and in many ways and of course will never fail to stir the imagination. It's also a darling of the Jungians. Um, and because of its powerful imagery, it can be seen as a feminine initiatory story from Psyche's point of view. However, what does the story tell us from Eros's point of view? As we know, Eros falls in love with Psyche, and this was not in the script, for Eros, armed with his poisonous arrows, was on a mission for Mother Venus, jealous of Psyche's beauty. Eros was to wound Psyche so that she would fall in love with a hideous monster the wedding to the monster theme. You know the one they didn't tell you about when you're standing at the altar? Um, and you only find out later? However, he wounds himself and he falls in love with Psyche. Because of the situation, he can only have an unconscious marriage to her, binding her to the promise to only be with him in the dark and never look upon his face. Now, how long can a girl last before the voices tempt her to look, only to break her promise and find that she's actually staring in the face of the God of love and beauty herself? So remind that when you're staring in, in your unconscious marriages that actually there may be the God of love lurking behind. So as we know, uh, the main text actually centers in Psyche's trials to reclaim Eros, which she does, but in this wonderful story, it's actually Eros that is the awakening agent, Psyche. So in this role of bringing Psyche to life, James Hillman says, Eros is the god of psychic reality, the true lord of the Psyche. He is the creative principle which engenders soul and is patron in the field of psychology. 
In Hillman's book, The Myth of Analysis, he examines eros as the potent force at the center of psychological work and soul-making. And did we build the work of involving psyche or involving psyche around a wrong myth, where the Oedipal longings may overshadow childhood's eros? And Hillman in this book, which I'm still reading, I've, I've had to read it, I can't tell you how many times, to try and mine what might be in it. I think he's saying that maybe we should have put the, the myth of Eros and Psyche at the center rather than Oedipus. However, this is when we now begin to enter the realm of Eros and sexuality. Because with the advent of psychoanalysis, Eros examined in the light of sexuality. However, the god Eros probably has more to do with creativity and the instinct to create self. As well, Eros may open the imaginal childhood realms that exist actually in a pregenital phase. Confusing Eros with purely the sexual instinct has actually been to deny Eros's initiatory aspect of leading us into our own individuality and creativity. However, between Plato and Freud, we see Eros in two extremes. Plato's Eros is a spiritual energy that falls towards Earth, while Freud's Eros is actually instinctual energy that is sublimated upwards. So Jung, in his two essays on analytical psychology, addresses this, as Hillman does. Eros initiates us into our own separateness and individuality, and therefore the question of what is sexually normal or abnormal is not so much a question for Eros, but for when Eros is denied. Because when Eros is denied, the compulsive urges to act out may take over, and then the individual has no choice. They're in the grips of a compulsion. They're driven to act out, and unfortunately the acting out often injures and separates them farther from Eros. And often, as we know, the story underlying the compulsive acting out is the actual perversion of Eros and love within the family of origin. Now, Cupid's work, Eros to Amor to Cupid, for the last 1800 years actually has been more centered on a religious quest for connection to God. Plato referred to Eros as a great diamond, that, that being neither human nor Olympian, but rather an intermediary between the two realms. So when we're in the grips of Eros, we're caught up, overtaken, and overpowered by its force. The human is transported to the realm of the gods, and the god feels human connectedness. The Christian absorption of this god Eros seems to be the cherub Cupid, the angelic guardian of the blissful state of union with God. Teresa of Avila's torturous rapture in her experience with her love for God are erotic. Francis of Assisi's love for God and poverty, remember poverty was Plato's, versions of, Plato's version of Eros's mother. Francis of Assisi's accounts is a joyfully painful account of erotic love. But here in the Christian era, the, the, the Eros spirit pervades. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, where is the body and where is the instinct? Remembering that Jung said Eros only survives when spirit and instinct are in the right harmony. If one or the other aspect is lacking to him, the result is injury or at the least lopsidedness, and that may easily veer towards the pathological. 
And herein lies the eros dilemma in that we have driven the instinct and body away from eros. Bodily eros then is denied and becomes pathological. Now, in 1898, um, another asteroid was discovered. So, being an astrologer, the astrological tradition says that what emerges in the sky is synchronistic with what is about to emerge out of the collective unconscious. What potent archetypal energy stirs below the horizon of consciousness that now demands recognition? So in 1898, an asteroid was named Eros. But it's also interesting to note here that this asteroid that was named Eros, when it was discovered, was the only known body beside the moon to come so close in orbit to the Earth. And in 1932, another asteroid discovered was given the name Amor, the Roman Eros. And this asteroid's orbit also comes close to the Earth. Whereas most asteroids orbit between Mars and Jupiter, the two named Amor and Eros leave the Olympian heights near Jupiter's Zeus and orbit in close astronomical proximity to the Earth. An, an astronomical synchronicity that Eros travels between the Olympian spirit and the body of Earth. And maybe it's time to begin to recognize it. In 1930, the planet Pluto was discovered but before it received its, its name or its association with the god Hades, Eros was a proposed name for it. However, since it had already been catalogued as an asteroid, the name could not be used again. So, Eros has burst onto the scene in the 20th century, possibly synchronistic with the development of psychoanalysis, as Hillman's notion of Eros as the patron of psychology might suggest, because he actually engenders psyche but also the lopsidedness Jung refers to of spiritual eros has swung back to try to help us rediscover the instinctual and bodily eros. Now Freud names eros as one of the two basic instincts, thanatos or the death instinct being the other. And I'm quoting when he says, after long doubts and vacillations, we have decided to assume the existence of only two basic instincts, eros, and the destructive instinct. The aim of the first of these basic instincts is to establish even greater unities and to preserve them. Thus, in short, to bind together. So he is quoting that original primal urge of Eros to bind together. The aim of the second, he says, on the contrary, is to undo connections and to destroy things. For this reason, we call it the death instinct. And I think as we will see later on, Eros and Thanatos both arrive in human relationship. Now Freud revives Eros and starts to address the sexual and bodily issues that begin to free Eros. Without entering the politics of psychology, um, Freud's Eros theory calls into question infantile sexuality and the needs to differentiate these not only, not only by gender but also personally. So here, I guess, is the beginning to address the cultural bias that, had, that was determined by gender and to return us to the focus of the child, the eros in all of us. Now, Jungian literature, of course, mentions eros frequently, mainly associated with feeling, the feminine, yin qualities. And this, I think, stems from Jung's identification of the inner contrasexual images he states that the animus corresponds to paternal logos, just as the anima corresponds to maternal eros. 
but I do not what, wish or intend to give these two intuitive concepts too specific a definition. I use eros and logos as conceptual aids to describe the fact that women's consciousness is characterized more by the cognitive quality of eros than the discrimination and cognition associated with logos. In men, eros, the function of relationship, is usually less developed than logos. In women, on the other hand, you'll enjoy this, eros is an expression of the true nature, while logos is often a regrettable accident. Well, well, from here on in, I guess eros in Jungian terms might begin to represent this connective feeling life, feeling feminine yin qualities. And I just draw both Freud and Jung in here to see that 20th century beginning of readdressing the potent force of eros. Now, psychology struggles with eros surely just as Christianity did the Olympians in antiquity. But Eros is readdressing in the 20th century is helping to differentiate sexuality and morality. It is who the individual is, not what they've done sexually. I can remember my childhood just a few years back that um, the word pregnant was actually a shameful word not actually to mention someone who might be in that state and unmarried. And homosexuality was, was actually a defined psychological illness. And fantasies of homosexuals actually was a subterranean world where men had high-pitched voices with limp wrists and uh, muscular women drove 10-ton trucks. Um, for a boy of my generation, the opposite sex was, was one that we had to conquer, to have power over. Uh, it certainly wasn't one to embrace as an equal. And failing our conquest over this opposite sex, we boasted about imaginal conquest, which I suppose was to hide the pain of our inability to relate. And so Eros today, I guess, is visible in the struggle on both sides of the gender line for equality. Eros is a force that allows us to know ourselves, and it operates forcefully through human relationships, all human relationships. Marie-Louise von Franz states it in this way, love with its passion and pain becomes the urge towards individuation, which is why there is no real process of individuation without love, for love tortures and purifies the soul. As Jung has stated also, love is the dynamic that infallibly brings the unconscious to light. Therefore, I'd like to leave this history and hopefully that's maybe brought a few associations out and examine Eros in the modern context of, of relating and love and the opposing forces that also are awakened in this state. All forms of relationship, even an avoidance of relationship, constellates Eros. Because of the powerful force of Eros and the suffering and pain ignited in human relationship, my experience with clients has helped me understand the equally powerful forces that keep us from this creative aspect called Eros. That creative aspect that we are looking for that is also born out of relating. 
And therefore, that's what I'd like to address in what I call this taboo against intimacy or the intimacy taboo. Because my feeling is that Eros is alive very much today in the personal quest for intimacy. Now, the word intimate, which, was ref which we can remember, um, Guggenbaugh, Greg, earlier on said it was Eros that actually made intimacy. Um, the word intimate actually comes from the Latin intima, which means inward and essential and intrinsic or innermost. So it's about innermost essential being. It also means closely associated. And um, as far as my etymology dictionary says, if I'm reading it right, it first came in our language around the 17th century. So intimacy with someone else or something else provides an inner experience of self, an inward knowing of self, that who we are. And this innermost core, potentially open by intimacy, is something we all desire, yet it's also something we clearly avoid. For while we yearn for a retrogressive union of closeness, we are also often not ready for the wound that intimacy reopens. Now, I like to use it as intimacy and taboo because the word taboo actually was coined by Captain Cook from the Tongan taboo, and its meaning is that which is prohibited, usually because what it protects. So a taboo protects something that may be of danger to the uninitiated, and I think that intimacy taboo protects eros. A taboo is also consecrated or restricted to a special use. Now to consecrate something is to vote, to vote it to a sacred purpose or to dedicate it. So psychologically, the taboo most of us are familiar with is the incest taboo. For Jung, the incest taboo's function was to steer the course of the psyche away from a retrograde desire for union with the parent. However, psychic incest permeates the culture because we know unboundaried, unfulfilled, enmeshed, narcissistic parents, products of their own conditioning, of course, have invaded the frontiers of this emerging self. So Jung suggested that an obstacle like a taboo propelled the psyche towards individuation. Now, without the taboo, the psyche may remain inert, stunted, or regressive. Hence, I like to use this image of the intimacy taboo for our culture seems to avoid authentic intimacy. And this probably is due to the flood of unconscious material that greets us when intimacy unlocks the doors behind which are stored our primitive feelings constellated around the early separations of life. And this um, will remind us of eros bursting in. Now intimacy also launches us on the road of individuation. And while the incest taboo may open up the image of the heroic self beyond the family and the home, the intimacy taboo potentially unlocks a transcendent self that lies beyond the other. So for the astrologers in the audience, you could see that the incest taboo may be lodged in the fourth house, the moon, while of course the intimacy taboo resides in the eighth. Now, Intimate encounters are sacred in a sense in, in that they bring who we truly are into the presence of another. <coughs> Equally, intimacy is a didactic experience and unconscious by nature. Unlike closeness, 
or the urge to feel close, which is, of course, more conscious and systemic and magnetizes um, intimacy magnetizes, as we will see earlier in primal images of bonding, that interconnect love and union with also eventual separation and loss. So to be intimate with someone implies a return, unconsciously of course, to potent earlier feelings of love and rage, love and loss, union and death. And hopefully in adult life, the ego is strong enough to contain these dangerous opposites. For most of us, of course, the container may not be strong enough, for the psychic incest of the parent may have zapped the psychic energy needed to contain these potent dualistic forces. An external event may hold the projected complex, an affair, a realization of having created the parental marriage, birth of a child, all those situations, an other or the third in a triangle, actually may keep us away from entering into intimacy. Whatever intimacy actually exposes this wound that lies underneath. Now we all know, or family therapy certainly knows, that at the heart of the family is the dyad, the one-to-one -one relationship of the parents. And that with a strong central marriage at the core, or a strong central relationship at the core, the unit of the family is strong. The primal relationship is what holds the intimacy and therefore the child is spared from triangularization or colluding with the parents. Now theoretically we know that the child tries to enter this triangle and with an intimate relationship occurring it, it cannot. Now, in more conscious cultures, the rage and loss at not entering into this triangle, triangle would be ritualized. The child would be helped through narcissistic rage, loss, separation. Our culture, we know that we don't have any rituals that provide us with the intense feeling life constellated around loss, separation. So in our culture, perhaps the intimate core of relating has fallen into the unconscious because we grow up in enmeshed, boundaryless families and we engage in unconscious collusions with the parents. Astrologically, you can see um, this because when Pluto was in Cancer, from 1912 to 1939, the family unit was actually the, the, the image of, of relationship. It, it was almost that closeness and children were actually intimate others, and closeness actually replaced intimacy. But today, Pluto, nearing these last degrees of Scorpio, I think we're beginning to ask and figure out and try to sort out what intimacy is all about. Therefore, opening ourselves up perhaps to experience of the god Eros. I guess there's a general feeling, I think it's my sense that in the culture today we've, we feel we've been raped by the family and so we struggle to find our own intimate relationships that hold family together and hence the culture together. I think this is where we're also drawn into the domain of Eros. So to understand this a bit more, if we think about deep in the psyche, there's a memory of bonding and separation, union and splitting. In other words, there's a feeling of oneness and bliss, but there's also knowing that these 
eventually lead to disparity and eventual separation. And from birth itself, there's a separation. There's a separation from transcendent symbiotic feelings to experience of separateness. Also, there's a separation when we realize our, the awareness of our differences from mother, that mother is actually primal and separate from us. And so this narcissistic wounding that realizing that mother is not totally ours and that we're separate from her, separate from her as a source of warmth, love and well-being, accompanies then with it a wound. And this wound also accompanies strong feelings of rage, also strong feelings of powerlessness. Because those feelings are that we are dependent on mother and yet we're separate and alone from her. And so this is important to remember because this sense of powerlessness in that we depend on someone and yet we're separate and alone from them. Because we've also shared the most intimate act of all with her in the mystery of life, the mystery of birth, realizing that we are not one with her but separate from her. We experience a sense of loss and often it's lifeless and an urge to die. We feel powerless to survive without the skills inside ourselves to create warmth, love, and well-being on our own. Now, I wonder where this key to the hidden kingdom really is. Well, in Robert Bly's commentary on the fairy tale Iron John, which you know is, is, is being trumped up as the um, male myth, knew the male myth, I guess. Um, however, we can see all stories in all, all very many different ways. Talked about this key, um, and so this key that we expect the partner to actually turn, he says the key is not in the attic, it's not in the tool shed, it's not in the closet. Actually, the key is under mother's pillow, um, right where Freud said it would be. But now, he also says that this key unlocks the cage of the wild man, which of course is the darker side of the feeling life. So while we want intimacy to unlock and restore the magic kingdom, unbeknownst to us, it also releases the wilder aspect and the darker components of the feeling life. The feeling of the return to wholeness as represented by the partner is also very much colored by the fears of separation. So what often accompanies the primal sense of loss and separation oftentimes are our feelings of sadness and abuse and the powerless and helpless feelings of inability to confront the inevitable forces that tear us away from blissful and total union oftentimes are re-experienced as abuse. Hence, it's no surprise that we often feel abused, even if there's no conscious recall of this. The yearning to return to the union and symbiosis, and knowing on some level we cannot, reawakens a very deep sadness. I think this also explains why often at the height of feeling bonded and intimate to our beloved, we can also feel painfully separate and sad. Uh, oftentimes in the erotic rituals of bonding through emotional and sexual closeness, closeness and at the time of perhaps being the closest we can be to anyone else we also discover the residue from earlier feelings of aloneness, sadness and abuse. So often um, 
people feel that there's something terribly wrong with the fact that being the closest they can be to someone else um, is actually um, constellating feelings of aloneness, separateness, sadness. Um, hence, it's easier to sort of project that out on bad sex um, and have a lot of books written about that rather than really truly finding out about the sense of bringing together these very powerful opposites. So with this constellation of the dark feeling life, I guess we have no wonder how the ego is very skillful at avoiding intimacy. For if intimate relationships actually transport us back to long forgotten childhood fears of desertion and death, then it's the best interest of the ego to sidestep this area. However, I don't think we can because the urge for wholeness is actually greater than the fear. But in the interim, we must be aware of this taboo that leads us away from intimacy. And also we must be aware that oftentimes what appears as intimacy is just a clever disguise at dodging this very vulnerable area. Now in Eric Erickson's Eight Stages of Life, he defines the task of early adulthood as intimacy where we now have to learn to think in the terms of we and our rather than I and mine. He said, without accomplishing this, we are liable to become fixated at adolescence and feel isolated. So also I think we see intimacy is the need also to readdress narcissism. In the context of an authentic intimacy, we must move away from a narcissistic tendency. Now narcissism in relationship is when, or a narcissistic relationship, one actually relinquishes their identity to someone else. In other words, individuality is sacrificed to echo. It's sacrificed to echo the other. And it's fearful for the narcissist uh, to have the, their partner actually have their own rights, or have their own opinions, or their own friends, or their own individuality. In a narcissistic relationship, relating depends upon fusion and sacrificing of differences. The partner in reality may not even exist to them, for the partner may only be an object of their fantasy, a kind of a mirror, something to project onto. The relationship may glide along free of battles and traumas. And I love the relationships that always say pr with pride that they have no battles no traumas. But that relationship that may glide, glide along free of these traumas may also be very void of true intimacy. Because what passes is relating is actually a powerful collusion against reopening earlier wounds and trapping each of the partners in an adolescent situation of idle isolation. The relationship becomes static. And when this happens, of course, eros is denied. And when eros is denied, you, what you begin to see is that, that there's also a sense of um, illness, fear, isolation, and also compulsion that begins to grow. So the paradox then of what we've been talking about is the longing to be intimate and close, yet because of the strong taboos against intimacy, we can also avoid this territory. And I think it's the nature of eros to actually begin to um, take us into this, this process. 
So the first stage that I see, there's stages, I think, of this erotic relationship. And the first stage, of course, is when we meet this powerful force of eros and this powerful diametric force that um, brings someone else into our lives. The force at the beginning or the first stage, I think, is oftentimes this urge to reenact this symbiotic relationship with mother. Um, this symbiotic relationship um, before we had the pain of separateness. But unbeknownst, of course, to these partners, quite unconscious to partners, um, we, the, mother, the shadow of the mother is cast across the marriage bed. So I think in the first stage in the Eros relationship, we're actually struggling to return to some sense of primal bliss, feeling of union, oneness, closeness. I think this also reflects the oral stage, where the passionate kisses invoke the safety and security of the mother's breast. In this first stage, of course, it's similar to what Erickson talked of as trust versus mistrust, where we learn to trust mother as life, since she holds the very key of our survival, and without her we're annihilated. The process is once again reawakened in this stage, and we transfer the trust onto the partner and we feel our life is in their hands. So I think this stage is recognizable because there's all those wondrous feelings that uh, billions of pop songs have been written about. And these wondrous feelings that are stirred deep, deep from the unconscious, archaic feelings, bliss, union. This is what Plato referred to as divine delirium and ecstatic rapture. And where can we get it? Um, so it's like the ego then is in the grip of, the, of this powerful psychic force and the individual is under, unaware of their state of vacillation and their loss of balance. Now ultimately this regression to a primal childlike part of herself that, den that denier, ultimately I'm sorry, this is a regression, regression to a primal childlike part of herself that den den desires total immersion in the other. So at this first stage of Eros, oftentimes what marks this stage is regression and idealization. Now, most, a lot of people don't get past this stage because at the second stage, I think, is when the recognition of differences and the feeling of separateness that feels like death begin to occur. This is when you realize you, you had that monster marriage, um, monster relationship. Also, too, at this stage, I think we reenact. We move from, we reenact an, an Oedipal stage in our development because at this stage, a third enters the scene. It's oftentimes a third entering the scene that actually constellates or brings it into the consciousness. Now, whether or not this third person actually literalizes, um, he or she is just there, just as the same-sex parent is there, threatening our um, relationship with the love object. So, Eros, in this stage, it's not surprising, of course, that this stage may be fraught with tragic triangles, powerful feelings of betrayal. Because at this stage, when we enter it, all these feelings that are lying underneath the surface emerge. Jealousy, fear of loss, abandonment, powerlessness, and the sense of annihilation at loss of the beloved. So at this stage, then we truly are beginning to be in the grips of the Eros and Thanatos. 
Now, the apex, of course, erotic triangles may all, always literalize as the partner's work. Um, one of the apex of the triangle is also the suspicion, or it's fantasy, or literally another lover. But whatever, at this stage, we've re reawakened the eatable complex, and I think we struggle to find the strength to move through these darker feelings. So what we see here, you see, is that um, these things that are oftentimes constellated in the erotic relationship are something we also try to avoid. Now, at this particular stage, we can also see that many of this recreating of triangles is also an urge to go back to the first um, stage of the erotic relationship, the primal bliss, and not move on. So at this stage, what you find is that a lot of people actually um, recreate the first stage with someone else or go into something else. But however, eros is about bringing opposites together, magnetizing, of course, the um, contents or the unconscious in relationship. And therefore, if we can emerge into the stage three of the process, I think that what begins to happen here is the breaking of complexes through the enormity of suffering. We begin to sense our rebirth into differences. We accept our identity and individuality, our separateness, as well as that of our partner. And we have no desire to obliterate the differences between us. I think at this stage now, the relationship can be highly erotic since the relationship now is risky. It's creative. It's constantly growing. It's constantly changing. There is acceptance of the limits of the other and more of a willingness to parent myself. Um, I think this stage characterizes both individuals living in the open with their fear of loss of the other, as also as well as the ability to express the darker feelings. So fear, anger, jealousy, disappointment, the good stuff, they're all able to be expressed without fear of losing the partner. More with the knowledge actually that this relationship actually will, will be helped through this. So the relationship becomes authentic at this stage. Okay. So at the first stage, what we generally see is inflation and regression. And in the second stage of, of intimacy, this is when the wound truly is opened and we are flooded with these feelings. So let's look then too, as I said, at, the, at oftentimes what happens at this stage and eros in creating the triangle. And not forgetting, of course, that eros in the story, eros and psyche was also involved in a triangle with mother Aphrodite, psyche and eros. And perhaps in our culture, the triangle is a, is a way also of addressing eros so that we can move, as I said, away from triangular triangularity into more erotic experience, which always seems didactic. So in this stage, we recreate a third. And the third, I think, has many forms, but it also most often, um, at least um, in the clients I see, is literalized in the form of another lover. Okay, And it's an actual lover from the past, present, or in potential. I mean, it's not necessarily actually literal, it's still in potential, it's represented by suspicion or fantasy. Now, the other lover, I think, emerges at this point, be it in suspicion, be it literally, is because partners have moved past this magic and this bliss of the first stage of union. 
Now, one or both of the partners refuse to recognize this and oftentimes rush off quite unconsciously trying to recreate the primordial bliss of the first stage. Of course, only to find the repetitive and compulsive desire to flee the dreaded sense of deep loss. So at this point you see, without moving through the stages, um, compulsion begins to arise. And I think therefore it's part of our growth to relive an Oedipal stage in our adult years, to actually bring in the triangle to move through it. And I think too it's not only another lover, but many times it's also the birth of the child. Because that certainly alters the, the dyad of the heart of the family. So a child oftentimes enters the scene as well, be it a biological child, a stepchild. But they enter in order to um, help this couple even create more intimacy. The third becomes actually a focus to bring us out of the regressive union and try to rework some of the prim primitive feelings that are buried underneath. So actually that apex of the triangle is important because it actually magnetizes and focuses these primitive feelings. Okay. Now, at this stage also, I think we also begin to feel the sense of, in the first stage, the sense of trusting the beloved. I think what we're really doing is not wanting to let them out of our sight, but it's more actually trying to trust. And then therefore, in oftentimes in withdrawing the, the numinous projections, we actually are betrayed. Now, in Aldo Corintunato, I hope I said that right, he's a Jungian analyst, um, and he's written a wonderful book called Eros and Pathos. Um, and in it, he says that at this moment of betrayal, a wound is opened in the most vulnerable spot, our original trust. And that, that wound is that of a defenseless infant. Remember those feelings we talked about of powerlessness. And this defenseless infant who cannot survive in the world unless it's in someone's arms. Hence, betrayal may be actually perhaps a necessary step in the Eros union because it stretches us actually into a transformation of infantile fears and actually drives the wound of separation and loss. Um, sorry, I said it can either stretch us into transformation, betrayal, um, or it can actually drive the wound of separation and loss deeper. And Jane Houston also speaking of betrayal said, of all the woundings, betrayal can be the greatest agent of the sacred because it marks the end of primal unconscious trust and forces upon us these terrible conditions that accompany the taking of the next step. So therefore betrayal might be part of this transformative process. We trust the beloved in a recreation of the infantile fantasy of good mother which leaves us helpless and dependent. And I think betrayal may be the opportunity to push through the painful feelings into an adult independence. It might allow for the coming of reflection and therefore of consciousness. So with betrayal, of course, emerges these most powerful psychic forces. The intimacy taboo is so strong that we probably contributed to the avoidance of intimacy, actually helping drive our partner into the arms of another. How, so therefore, we might see this erotic script as a tragic script 
if we're not able to find the strength to, find, to, to face the dread of our own fears or angst or rage. But remember, eros is to enliven, to bring opposites together. And as we've spoken, it also burns the soul. However, in this second stage, we also see Eros as companion. Thanatos is also present, beckoning us into death. Now, resisting, I guess, is to deny the solitude and aloneness, but also resisting is perhaps to refuse an important initiation in the individuation process. So at this stage, there is death-like feelings. But remember, too, in the Eleusinian Mysteries, or in the story of Kore, which is much like the story of Psyche, who descends into the underworld, this is maybe our opportunity also to descend into the underworld so that we can reclaim and give birth to the magical child of Eros in a creative way. Now this triangularization of Eros actually, I think, is helping to kill off infantile urges. That urge in us to re return to undifferentiated bliss Eros, in its triangular form at this stage, might help recognize our separateness. And without Eros's initiation, perhaps this separateness is always dreaded and feared. But once we enter into the process and work through the loss, we work through the betrayal, we work through the rage, then the separateness, I think we then can allow ourselves to experience the other, the beloved, from an adult perspective. Remember, Psyche, after being engendered by Eros, goes on her journey to complete her tasks, which is probably part of this second stage. Um, we often associate, of course, the Eros, what comes up in this is also possessiveness control. What we have to understand here, that if unconscious content lurking underneath the surface of the relationship is that fearful, of course we'll consciously try to employ control tactics to keep it away. Controlling the partner, trying to possess them, are actually hallmarks, perhaps, of an erotic relationship that may begin to evoke betrayal. Jealousy is another thing that arises out of the guarding of this primal wound, because whenever there's a fear of loss or separation, there's also jealous feelings. So I think loving in an erotic domain implies that jealousy may be also part of the process. Um, in his book, Eros and Pathos, he also says that jealousy is actually a feeling immutably tied to love. Lovers cannot help but know it. I think it's an authentic feeling in relationship and also is something we need to, to have as an authentic feeling so that we can also allow the process and initiation of Eros to take place. Okay, so the triangles that emerge out of the depth of a union is what Eros may represent. Um, and perhaps in, in a sense, this is necessary, as I said, in every relationship, in order for the initiation of separation to be completed successfully. The ego is stretched, and hence the relationship does not always have a disastrous end. In fact, its purpose is to transform the relationship into adulthood. Eros, I think, helps strengthen the self and therefore the relationship in its disclosure of the fears and the opposite feelings that lie underneath the surface. 
the outcome, as we know, is potentially transformative and I think enhances our experience of love. So, um, E. Pearson, in a book called Dreams of Love and Fateful Encounters, said that no love dyad is immune from triadic components. Most often, these can be incorporated into the didactic relationship and need not be corrosive. Particularly when they take the form as fleeting fantasies, such triangles may even be enriching to love. One of the things that um, Jung talks about with love is that when love reigns, he says, there is no will to power, and where will to power is paramount, love is lacking. In other words, perhaps also the initiation of Eros help us engage in coming into our own power. The power of love, I think, is a transforming agent of childhood wounds, and they oftentimes can free us from the overwhelming fears of also losing the sacred, which is also at this point then perhaps personified as the partner, the other, the beloved. But those who are threatened by the loss also cling to power, as we said before, and, and control techniques. But loving actually in an erotic way actually implies that we are vulnerable at all times to the loss. We may enter into the union powerless to control the force of its destiny. Love has a power far beyond the power or will of the ego. And entering into its mystery is to enter into the potential transformation that the power of love provides. To remain closed to this intimate area, perhaps, is to begin to summon all the defenses we know to keep the dread away. That then may become the love of power. The power struggle also emerges in intimate encounters since the forbidden aspects of ourself are awakened. And what may be increasingly clear to us all is that the partner is harboring similarly negative traits and we feel compelled to control these. Okay. So some of the power tactics used in, um, in these relationships. The two main ones today, of course, are sex and, power, uh, sex and money. Um, sexual activity uh, is an expression, oftentimes, of love, but it's equally an expression of power. Um, sexual activity, of course, united with emotion can move us, an uh, emotion moves us into surrender. However, sexual activity can also engage in power and control and oftentimes sexuality is oftentimes employed as a power tactic to keep us actually away from this place um, called intimacy. And here then we begin to see the seeds of sexual dysfunction or also the seeds of sexual compulsion. As I said before, I think the other area in, in eros besides sex in today's culture in, in our life today, the other power tactic is money. Um, it's an arena, maybe not replacing sex as a prime defense against intimacy, but a close second. Um, in other words, oftentimes the ref refusal to lose control of our own private assets, the, ref the refusal to be opened to um, the sense of our own resources, guarding our resources, oftentimes is actually 
guarding the wound that intimacy reveals. I think in refusing to enter into sharing of all resources, we might also refuse to enter into looking at the deeper fears that underlie the surface. Hence the raging and divorce courts, over $500 stereos. I don't think we're raging at $500, raging at unexplored intimacy. We're raging at the denial of eros. And so debt in our culture is a very, very significant point that brings up the fact that we're oftentimes far away from eros. Debt is another way that we ensnare ourselves in a power struggle. Debt is another way we keep ourselves perhaps dependent. And it's interesting that our culture teaches us how to be in debt, but certainly not how to be intimate. Desire is another word that is, that is certainly an erotic word. As we saw before, heme eros means desire. But also the word desire comes from the Latin um, sidera, which means star. So sider, like sidereal, that means star. And de means absence. So desire means the absence of stars. Um, and supposedly this referred to, in the old in the antiquities, the soothsayer's inability to make a prediction due to the lack of stars. In other words, there was no stars, can't predict. I think I'll use that next time. Um, now, desire actually leads us into the unknown, because if stars represent the urge for consciousness, which they do, desire actually then, no stars, leads us into unconscious realms. Desire is part then, as I said, of an erotic process, because lovers who desire one another are thrown into the territory of Eros that territory that's unknown, unconscious. Following desire is to have no stars to navigate by, to walk unknown territory. Hence, we see why desire is often fearful and attempts to socialize it out of us are very strong. But when Eros is awakened, so is desire. And at that point, we oftentimes go against all conscious signs and follow its course. We're compelled by the force of desire. I think desire, in an unmasked sense, really starts to restore an original wholeness. And I'm talking about that again in terms of relationship and desire. And therefore, desiring for the beloved is oftentimes an unconscious attempt to return to the Garden of Eden. In um, a book called Jocasta's Children by Christine Olivier, who is a French feminist Freudian, an FFF. Um, she talks about, again, another book I'm reading many, many times. Um, she talks interestingly about desire from a, Freud, a French Freudian feminist point of view. Um, and she brings up some interesting things, I think, here for, for Eros as well. Because she talks about, of course, the Oedipal Triangle from Jocasta's point of view, or the Oedipal Complex from Jocasta's point of view, who, of course, was Oedip Oedipus's mother. And in it, she says that the mother, who is the earliest initiator of the child's sexuality, has left in the man the scar of desire forbidden. 
by the incest taboo. And in the woman, that of having no place for desire, since there is no room in the mother's desire for the little girl's erotic pleasure. So is she pointing out here that there's a dangerous ground for desire which reemerges re in the erotic relationship in that the man has to rework his desires in the face of shame, guilt, and transgression of the sacred, and that the woman may have to acknowledge the unfamiliar, often for the first time. She has to reach past the comfort of being the object of desire into the equal stance of engaging in her own desires. I think desire then, both men and women have to battle past the unconscious fears and acknowledge their desires, even though these desires leave them lead them into the unknown. So, what about that third stage I talked about after the um, marriage counselors and the therapy? Or maybe after the bliss of just allowing Eros to run its course in relationship without rushing off to recreate the first phase. I think then we have, of course, what Jung talked about when he talked about um, the mystical marriage as an archetype, an image that is part of us all, waiting perhaps at the end of this erotic initiation may be this sense of, of union. He also, of course, and as we all know and all feel because of its archetypal nature, we most mostly seek the other half externally, projecting, of course, the missing half of this mystical marriage onto the partner. However, as we'll see, Eros is about reclaiming that, that, that projection and is about actually, on some level, opening us up to the authentic experience of that transformation of the relationship. So Jung used the symbol of the divine wedding as a culmination of the process of individuation. And therefore, perhaps, the transformation of Eros can actually restore the identity of separateness and identity individually for each of us so that we can once again reach out to collective realms. Reconciling these opposing forces is part of Eros's domain. It's part of an internal struggle worked out in an external world. But perhaps through following its course, through the union, we can begin to transform this path that leads to the divine wedding. And perhaps now, we can see that Eros, as love, can combine both these opposing forces. So I'd just like to close, actually, by reading from Gabran's prophet, um, where he addresses love. Um, and as you know, he describes the joy and the pain of love, or eros. But just before I do, I'd just like to make a few references um, to perhaps some of the material that I've talked about tonight for the astrologers that, that may be here. Um, because in the horoscope, the terrain of Teros is clearly, as, as um, those of you who've heard me talk before on this, is, is clearly the domain of the Eighth House, where the love-death rituals are reenacted, where the idea of love and death come together, and where we begin to also see sexuality and death. And perhaps, hopefully now, you might understand that in more of a um, psychological level. 
also perhaps in the horoscope or astrologically um, in signs, the sign of course of Scorpio will have many of these images because Scorpio also is the process of surrendering um, and reawakening ourselves to separateness and individuality so that we can move on to, to the domains Sagittarius or um, higher vision and its opposite of Taurus in the Scorpio in, in the horoscope um, will also I think tell us a lot about the god Eros so here in the Scorpio Taurus polarity desire beauty love and of course the two planets very much um, associated with Eros would be Venus and Pluto now in the erotic relationship as well let's not forget that at the end of the um, fable of Amor and Psyche after all of Psyche's trials and when she is reunited with Eros they had a child and the child was called Voluptia which means the pleasure of joy so again perhaps in the sense of Eros's initiation what we see is perhaps the divine child that's born of joy and also as I said I think Eros is very strong connection to um, creativity and just before as I said I close with that reading from the prophet something came across my desk it's like this late flash from the new you know the, that they read on the um, on the news late flash which was quite exciting that I got this it's from a American magazine wouldn't you know called um, for family therapists called the family therapy networker and in this um, article called the search for intimacy subtitled inside the sexual crucible um, which they which I show you maybe a little I'll show you two pictures in a minute maybe that'll help you somehow we seem to very much eros and sexuality get lumped in together but I hopefully maybe differentiated a bit tonight in this article much of what we have talked about is is here and I was just read you a quote from from it if if I if you don't mind it says that the quest for intimacy is a great engine propelling the manifold therapies and the human potential enterprises well that's true enough intimacy workshops people ask me why we weren't doing a workshop on Eros and I thought to myself hopefully tonight you'll have your workshop but anyway so um, most however confuse intimacy with togetherness and closeness hopefully tonight we've differentiated that with the the sense of regression so most however confuse intimacy with togetherness and closeness failing to see the inherent paradox in intimacy it's the acute awareness of our fundamental aloneness loneliness and separateness from other human beings that motivates intense intimate contact catchphrases like fear of abandonment which later pop psychology bespeak our refusal to accept that we are alone the intimacy taboo save our love and curiosity about the familiar strangers who populate our lives the recognition that each of us is ultimately alone brings with it the sorrow of re realizing that our most intimate relationships are ambiguous painful and transient ambiguous because we can never absolutely know another can never fully dissolve our lonely separateness 
in merger with another. Painful because every sexual relationship that approaches the limits of sexual potential triggers what one patient called a bottomless pit of past disappointment about love not received and eros. And a terrible fear of loving and wanting much more intensely than does our partner. So I thought this um, was interesting in that in this article too, addressing intimacy and also, as I said, looking at intimacy as part of the erotic connection. Um, this is not the greatest picture, but um, this um, is a painting. Um, it's from the, the newspaper article on a painting by Bougereau, a French uh, a painter who b did beautiful paintings of um, mythology. This one was called, of course, Amor and Psyche. And here she is, you just barely see her butterfly wings, the wings of Eros. She's being abducted, um, doesn't seem to mind. Um, <laughs> her eyes are closed because she's unconscious. She's in the first stage. <laughs> he, he didn't paint her when she was doing her tasks. But there is that sense of rapture that, that in part of the Eros that carries us up. So just then to close, in the prophet, of course, the first thing that is addressed is, is love, or, and I think also he's speaking here of Eros when he says, when love beckons you, follow him, though his ways are steep and hard, and when his wings enfold you, yield to him, because the sword hidden among his pinions may wound you though his voice may shatter your dreams. For even as love crowns you, so he shall crucify you. For even as he is for your growth, so he is for your pruning. For even, even as he ascends to your height, so he shall descend to your roots and shake them in the clinging to the earth. All these things love shall do unto you that you may know the secrets of your heart and in that knowledge become a fragment of life's heart. But if in your fear you would only seek love's peace and love's pleasure, then it is better for you to cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor into the seasonless world where you will laugh, but not all your laughter, and weep, but not all your tears. So love gives not but itself and takes not but from itself. Love possesses nor would it be possessed, for love is sufficient unto love. Love has no other desire but to fulfill itself. So, if you love and must needs have desires, then let these be your desires. To know the pain of too much tenderness, to be wounded by your own understanding of love, and to bleed willfully and joyfully, and to wake at dawn with a winged heart, and give thanks for another day of loving. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for listening to Brian Clark's Reclaiming Eros, where he intricately described the bringing together of opposing energies in Eros or love and the ways in which Eros manifests in intimate relationships. 
Eros helps strengthen the self and relationships by initiating a re-engagement and ultimately a reconciliation of our earliest union and separation, transforming our experiences of love. We hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today and please visit us at www.youngsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page.